0: Isaiah chapter 15. Some historians that have covered the entirety of known human history have often said history is simply the rise and fall of great empires as well as small nations and royal dynasties. And we see that also in the Bible with the rise and fall and the rise again of Israel and then its enemies. Yes, Israel is still a people. Has that ever struck you that it's been 4,000 years, give or take, since the Israel nation began with the calling of Abraham. And it's still a people. Many of the other ancient ones have been amalgamated. Their countries no longer have borders, etc. And then Israel wandered for centuries and then became an official nation again in 1948. It's not unusual. There was a little saying many years ago. I don't have it all, but the beginning of it was how odd of God to choose the Jews. And then odder still that they are with us today. You've heard of Napoleon, the uh, emperor of the French empire, 200 and something years ago. The French have an interesting attitude toward him. He was a dictator who tried to conquer Europe and was stopped at the Russian border before he got to Moscow, but he believed in God, and he did put an end to the reign of terror after the French Revolution, so the French admire him, but an interesting fellow, the little general always putting his hand in his shirt pocket like this, and once one of the French skeptics said, um, Your Majesty, is there any proof for the existence of God? Napoleon said, oui monsieur, the Jews. The Jews are still here. God chose them and he has something for them. Interesting answer. How would you answer that skeptic's question? Well, today in these chapters, we see more of God's predictions of doom for the neighbors of Israel in the time of Isaiah, about 600 BC, and how God would deal with them. Now I've said that we're not covering every verse, and today we're just doing a brief summary of chapters 15 to 23, looking at these neighboring nations that were enemies facing God's judgment. And I've said it's like we're skipping stones across a lake. Anybody ever do that when you were young or maybe older? Skipping stones. Tonight we're going to get about like six pity pats over the surface. Okay, the first one, chapters 15 to 16, Moab. Let's look at their history. They were descended from Lot, the nephew of Abraham, so they were related to the Jews, but it's a sordid beginning, not like the call of Abraham, but you remember the incident with Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his daughters and wife left before the fire came and then one of the daughters, actually both of them did something very bad with their father and those girls became the daughters of two neighboring tribes, one of which was Moab. Um, A couple of interesting things. It's east, uh, in biblical days, just east of the Jordan River so it would be today in the general area of the nation called Jordan. Jordan not quite to Saudi Arabia. This was the land of Balaam and Balak. You remember when the Jews wandered in the wilderness and they were on the way to the Promised Land? Balak said, they're not coming here. He hired Balaam to curse them in the name of their God and it didn't work. And then they went their own way and Balaam was later killed. In the British Museum, there's a big slab of of, uh, black stone about the dimensions of the top of this pulpit called the Moabite stone, and I've seen it many times. Maybe you've heard of it. Archaeologists discovered it in the days of Napoleon when Napoleon tried to conquer Egypt, and they dug it up and they said it's in three languages and it must be the same message in each one of them, and that became the code to learn hieroglyphics. No one had broken hieroglyphics before that. So it was in Greek and in Coptic, which was similar to Greek, And they said it's the same message and from there they're able to understand messages that were inside the pyramids. The Moabite stone mentions Moab. Interesting. And then one interesting story in the Bible about a a family from uh, Israel moves to Moab and the father dies. And then later the two sons die and the two daughters die were from Moab, and they cling to the mother-in-law, Naomi, and they go back to Israel, to the little town of Bethlehem, and one of them was named Ruth. You know what happened with Ruth. She falls in love with Boaz. They get married, have a little son named Obed. He has a son named Jesse, and he had several sons, one of which was King David. But Ruth was from Moab and converted to the true religion of the one true God. However, looking through biblical history, that was an exception. Very, very few, if any, others from Moab converted and believed in the one true God. Ruth was kind of like Rahab out of the Canaanites that converted from paganism to the true religion, but very few others. By the way, this is proof that though God issued a woe to Moab, As I say in my book, there is no reprobate nation where nobody will ever be saved, because the Bible says there'll be some from every tribe and nation in heaven one day. But Moab was punished, just like the Canaanites, but there were a few converts, and those were in the minority from nations that were overwhelmingly pagan to the very end, such as the ones we're looking at tonight. These ganged up on Israel because they hated Israel and Israel's God. But there were a few minor exceptions. The principle here is that there will be Christians from all nations in heaven. The Bible says it will be a great number that no man can number. That's in Revelation 5, 9 and also 7, 9. Though we will be a great number, will still be fewer than those that die lost. There will be more in hell than in heaven. Very few people from Moab believed. And the same thing with the other nations we're looking. Now, before we move on, here's a question. Why is God sending these judgments and why does he warn them? Why didn't he just say, let them stew in their own sin and my judgment will come? Why warn them? And why does God still warn people? Or to go a step further, why does God give warnings like this to people he knows will die lost? Step behind that. These are ones he has not chosen to be saved. Why does he warn them through Isaiah and Jonah and these others? Why does he urge them to repent? The warnings always say that there is still time to repent. That's why God is warning them. 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He desires our repentance and salvation, so there's a paradox he knows they're not going to believe. He's predestined only some, but yet this shows the goodness of God's heart. Romans 2.4, do, do you despise the goodness and mercy of God, not knowing that the mercy of God leads you, entices you to repentance? Whatever happened to Moab? Well, they got amalgamated into other nations over time, and so there's no nation of Moab. Today, it would be more or less part of Jordan dominated by Muslims. But there are a few Christians in Jordan today. Okay, that's a very brief summary, so let's skip the stone again. Chapter 17 and 18, now instead of going east, we go north to Damascus, and that's the capital city of Syria, which is just kind of northeast of Israel. Lebanon is directly north of Israel, and those nations are next to each other. Now, if you know a little bit about history, you know that some historians say Damascus is still here today. And as far as they can tell, it's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. That's what some historians say. It's in Syria to this day, large city. It's east of Lebanon, northeast of Israel. And uh, they're mentioned many times in the Old Testament even once or twice in the new. For example, you remember the story of King Naaman, and he had incurable leprosy, and he wondered, what am I going to do? This is ugly, I'm going to die from this. And there was a, a young servant girl that had heard about one of the prophets, I think it was Elisha, and said, he's down there, maybe he could do something. So Naaman said, okay, go down there. And you remember the rest of the story. He shows up with all this, this, this entourage, and, and the messenger goes in and says, The king of Syria is out there and he wants your help. And so he just sends a message. Well, tell him to go dip in the muddy creek out there and he'll he'll be good. Don't bother me. (laughs) Goes to the king and the king was angry. He treats me like I'm just another person. Doesn't he know why I am. And the assistant said, wait a second. Um, At least he gave you advice. Go and try it. And he says, I'm not going to go bathe in that muddy river. We've got clean rivers up in Syria. Humor him. Do it. You know, wouldn't you have done something great if he had asked you to do it? It was not going to hurt. Go ahead and, do it. and he did it, and I like how Billy Graham used to preach on it. The first time he come up and says, "I feel like a fool." Everybody's laughing at me. No, no, do it again, Master. Did it again and again, and come to number six, and uh, he says, "I'm getting out." Of and you know, he says, "No, no, the, the, the servant, the, the, the prophet said seven times." One more time when he came up, and I like it says, his skin was as clean as a brand new baby, The leprosy was gone. That was the king from Syria named Naaman. Don't know the name of the little servant girl or the man that helped him. Syria often attacked Israel, but on a couple occasions they sided with Israel. Doesn't that sound like some of the neighboring nations today that They're siding with Israel, and sometimes they didn't. We need to pray that Syria does not get involved in the current war like they did in 1948, 1967, and 1973. In these chapters and elsewhere, God said that Damascus would be destroyed like Babylon, and it was, but unlike Babylon, it got rebuilt sort of. That's what we have today. But you have to remember these big cities like Nineveh and like Damascus, they felt indestructible, huge walls to keep the enemies out, strong armies. And they said, kind of like beating their chest, We're indestructible, we'll never fall. But they did, and that's what God says here. It'd be like saying today that one day, within just 48 hours, New York City will be decimated, or London or Paris won't exist anymore. You say, No, they're too big. Oh yeah, happened to Damascus and many others, but pride builds up people. You know, I'm a stu- student of World War II, and I remember documentaries about the last year of the war. The Germans in Berlin said, "We'll never fall." Were the biggest? Did you know the the biggest city in Europe, and they had conquered most of Europe, and now they're kind of retreating, but they said Berlin will never ever fall. But it did. The kingdoms of this world will all crumble one day, and we see examples in these chapters. Pray that God would save people in Syria. There are some Christians there. You see, in early um, Christian history, Christians began to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and many of them went into Syria, and a lot of them became Christians, And then later they formed the Syrian Orthodox Church. That's part of the Eastern Orthodox group of churches, Greek uh, and Russians and other ones. They're not the most Orthodox in biblical terms, but some of them are true believers. Last summer, uh, when I was on vacation doing some research, I read some of the writings of some of the early Syrian Christians, such as Ephraim Cyrus who wrote some very beautiful hymns, and I was moved, almost to tears, and this is beautiful stuff. Also, when Christians moved up there, oh, around the second and third century, they translated the Bible into the Syriac language. So I'm just giving you an overview of Syria and Damascus. And so though God warns them and said, you're going to be punished, and your city's going to be destroyed, there is still hope. Verse 7, in that day a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He'll not look to his altars. In other words, some of them will believe. Just like in Moab, Ruth believed in some of these other nations. It'd be in the minority, but just like you look at the world and say there's no hope for the world, but God still has his people. God's still in the business of saving people. Okay, now we skip over to chapters 19 to 20. We're going kind of fast tonight. We'd be here all night if we went verse by verse. Now, instead of looking to the east and looking to the north, God kind of goes half a circle down to Egypt to the southwest of Israel. Let's do an overview of Egypt. The Bible mentions Egypt quite a bit. At one time, it was the mightiest nation on earth. Now, get the chronology. I believe that God inspired the genealogies in the Bible to give us a general timeline of how old the earth is. So go back approximately 4,000 B.C., there's creation, and then about 2,600 years B.C., there was the worldwide flood. Then it began to repopulate the nation with Noah and his people, and some of them moved on to Egypt where they built the pyramids, Not too long after that, about the year 24, 2500 B.C., the pyramids, and it grew very much into a great nation within the next few hundred years, and Abraham went down there and came back, Isaac went down and came back, and then Jacob and his family went down there, Jacob died, but the nation of Israel stayed there for another 400 years, and it multiplied like rabbits. And, of course, you know the story of Joseph became the prime minister. Not the king, but the prime minister of Egypt and helped protect his people. And then later, 400 years later, about 1450 B.C., God raised up a little prince named Moshe. That's the Hebrew pronunciation of Moses, who was raised in the royal family of the Pharaoh of Egypt. But he found out he was a Jew, and God used him to deliver... His people from Egypt. By the way, let me just say something about the pyramids. The pyramids were not built by the Jews. Some people seem to think that. They say, well, how could could anybody build those pyramids? I've always wanted to see the pyramids. I've seen the pyramids down in uh, Mexico. But how did they build them? I mean, Stonehenge is still a mystery, but massive things. Some say, well, the Jews did it. We don't know for sure. There's some strange theories, but it was not built by the Jews because it was built before the Jews went into captivity in Egypt. And then the Old Testament, their influence declined, but they were still a threat. And so sometimes they would fight Israel. Sometimes the Assyrians would do a a treaty with the Egyptians to gang up on Israel. So they were never really at peace with Israel Then you fast forward to just a generation before the time of Jesus. Uh, The Roman Empire was growing and Julius Caesar before he was executed by Brutus and others. He went down to Egypt and you know the story, he fell in love with the queen of Egypt named Cleopatra. Julius Caesar. And then you fast forward, remember I mentioned Napoleon? He tried to conquer Egypt and failed. That brings us to the 20th century. What's the history, what stands out in Egypt in the 20th century? One man in particular named Gamal Nasser. That's Gamal, not Camel. Nasser. He uh, was sort of a secular Muslim. he had recognized Islam, but he wanted to rebuild the empire of Egypt and defeat Israel, and he started developing nuclear weapons. But it failed. He did not develop them. And he wanted to unite all the Muslim nations. Did you know that since the fall of the Ottoman Empire in 1917, at the end of World War II, all those nations were split apart and they became enemies of each other, like Iran, Iraq, and so forth. Nasser came close to uniting them all. Boy, that's a nightmare of our State Department and the United Nations. If they all united, they would all go against Israel. If they have nuclear weapons, what would they do with them? But Nasser stands out. Kind of like a flash in the pan back in the 60s during the 1967 Six-Day War. And it came to, they failed. But just within six years, they did a complete turnaround. Egypt became very friendly with Israel. Thanks mainly to Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, a man of peace, and the rather militant Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin and they signed an agreement that's still being honored today. Egypt is not likely to fight Israel in the current war, although there are Muslim fanatics in Egypt today, particularly in what's called the Muslim Brotherhood, that want to say, Nasser was right, let's go and fight the Jews, take the land and share it with our Palestinian brothers. So the winds could change in Egypt though they're a friend now, could attack Israel again, pray. What about Christians in Egypt? Well, just like in the second century, Christians went north and east with the gospel, some of them went down to Egypt, and some Egyptians did believe. If you know anything about Christianity in Egypt, there's about 10% 10 of Egypt claims to be Christian. Most of them were in the Coptic Orthodox Church. By the way, this chapter does mention briefly Ethiopia, the southern neighbors of Egypt. Okay, next we come to chapters 21 and 22. And it starts with an unusual name without telling you offhand what nation is being condemned. 21.1, the burden against the wilderness of the sea. What's that? Scholars I consulted said this is a uh, metaphor for Babylon which was on the Persian Gulf, the sea, but it was still much desert area like the wilderness next to the sea. Also, other areas are thrown into the mix here. Chapter 21, verse 11, Duma, Arabia, Twenty-one, thirteen. Back then it wasn't Saudi Arabia, but it was the land of the Arabs. Later, that's where... Muhammad came from, and then in the 20th century became Saudi Arabia, named after the uh, family of Saud. 2116 mentions Kedar. Interesting, look at 22.1, mentions the Valley of Vision. And from there came the title for a very good book I recommend. Let me see a show of hands. Has anybody read it? Anybody have it? Oh, almost half of the people here. It's a little book of wonderful prayers of the Puritans. It's called the Valley of Vision, not like this pagan Valley of Vision. 2214 also bears something mentioning, so I'm going to say a little bit about this verse. And this would apply to them, but also to some others. 2214, Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, Even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. There'll be no atonement. God did provide a general atonement for all men, but there's also what we call limited atonement just for his people. This is one of about five verses in the Old Testament says there'll be no atonement for that person or for that sin. Such as for the wicked sons of Eli, one of the judges. Jeremiah says the same thing, so... There is a sense in which atonement is limited to those that God has chosen, those that God will forgive, those that believe. But for others, there will be no atonement. What is atonement? It's sacrifice that propitiates and satisfies God's anger and opens the door for forgiveness. But these people were um, so degenerate. God says, I've given up on them. I've warned them. Judgment's coming. No atonement for them. And so this is one of several arguments from the Bible that there is such a thing as limited atonement. Even though there are benefits for everybody, there are still some things only for God's people and it's limited to them. And for others, you say there's no atonement for them. Notice how Isaiah is going all around Israel. He you know, it, it, it condemns the ones north, northeast, to the east, to the south, what about to the west? Well, nothing out there except the Mediterranean Sea. But one island is mentioned in the next section. Why not Greece or Rome? Uh, they were not empires yet. They had not, They had never attacked Israel. They were a bunch of goat herders over in Greece and in Rome, but they would later became major empires that would go against Israel. But that would be in the future. Isaiah's talking to the nations at his time and before them. Okay, lastly, we'll look at chapter 23. It says, The burden against Tyre. By the way, that phrase burden occurs several times in Isaiah. It's like saying, Isaiah, I'm going to give you this heavy burden to go and preach to them. I know it's going to be dangerous, but be a man of courage and deliver my burden. For them, just like sometimes we say, "I have a burden to witness to someone. I have a burden to pray for my family." God had given this burden to Isaiah, and now He pronounces doom on Tyre, T-Y-R-E, and then we'll see also some miscellaneous neighbors near and far. Remember, last week we quoted from Isaiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel twenty-eight, parallel section to what we saw in Isaiah 14. You remember Isaiah 14, in the middle of all this um, condemnation of Babylon, God gives a special condemnation to an unusual king of Babylon. And the words are such that it's not just a human king, but the demonic king behind the throne, Satan himself. And it talks about his sin in heaven and being thrown out. He started off as Lucifer, ends up as Satan. And Ezekiel 28 has another paragraph very similar to that, not talking about Babylon, but talking about Tyre and then about the fall of Satan. And just like Babylon and Tyre will fall and be punished, so will Satan and his evil, invisible empire. Look at chapter 23, verse 1. "Wail, you ships. Now that's obviously metaphorical language, ships don't wail, wail you ships of Tarshish. What and where is Tarshish? Some scholars think that because of this location and the similarity of the names, it's talking about Tarsus. Anybody know who came from Tarsus? Saul, who became Paul, the apostle from Tarsus. Others think, no, Tarsish is where Jonah went, way to the west. Go west, young man, to get away, but uh, Tarsus, there is probably in Spain, and that had never really attacked Israel, so it's probably the land of Tarsus up there where Tyre is, north of Israel. So again, God has gone full circle to the north, to the east, to the west, and now he's back up north, just kind of skipping over the Mediterranean, except for one island. Look at the text Cyprus. Cyprus is mentioned in the New Testament because. A certain man came from there that was a Jew, and he was one of the earliest converts, very close to the apostles, named Barnabas from Cyprus. But that's the only island out there that's mentioned, even though there were hundreds around Greece. That's the only one that's mentioned here because it was the most populated. Chapter 23, verse 2 mentions Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are often mentioned together. Verse 11 mentions Canaan, that is what was left of it. There still were some Canaanites. And then also verse 13, the Chaldeans. Another word for the Babylonians. They all come under God's warnings and punishment. Notice the prediction in uh, verses 15 to 17. The prediction of 70 years of punishment. Does that strike you as interesting? 70 years. The same punishment leveled upon Israel in the time of Daniel. God had prophesied through Jeremiah, my people will be slaves in Babylon for 70 years, and then toward the end of that, Daniel, Jeremiah had already died, Daniel did the computation and said the 70 years are almost up. Interesting, 70 for one and 70 for the other. Lastly, turn to the New Testament, where Tyre is mentioned, and there's a very important lesson here where God Through Jesus issues another condemnation, surprisingly to a people you would not expect. Look at Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 20. Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Remember, most of his ministry was up around Nazareth, Chorazin, Bethsaida. They're just next to the Sea of Galilee in north Israel. So look at the words of Jesus, verses 21 and 22. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's one of those towns. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. What's he saying here? Woe to you, just like the woes back in the book of Isaiah, only now it's on Israel. But Israel wasn't into pagan idolatry at this time. They had learned their lesson when they came back from Babylon. No more idolatry. But what we began was a very proud legalism. And then when Jesus came along, they didn't believe in him. Oh, a few did. There's always a remnant. But as a people group, Israel rejected their own Messiah and Jesus issued this woe to them, like in Matthew chapter 23. Seven times he says, woe to you. But here he's leveling upon certain cities, because he said, all these mighty works were done in you. It's almost like he's saying, what more do you people need to prove I am your Messiah, and you should turn and believe and repent? Remember on one occasion, actually very similar to this time, they came to Jesus and their audacity, or here's the Hebrew word, the chutzpah, the gall, they come to Jesus and say, give us a sign that you are who you say you are. You remember Peter? Peter was kind of a blunt person. I can picture Peter saying, get out of the way, I'm going to give these people what for. I can see Peter saying, what do you guys need? You've seen hundreds of miracles and you're asking them to do one more. How many will it take to please you guys? Well, Jesus is speaking very bluntly to them. You notice it said, previous verse, they had already seen so many, most of his mighty works. Healing the blind, the crippled, the deaf, raising people from the dead, walking on water. And yet it said they still didn't repent. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, says, the Jews seek for a sign, but the sign still wouldn't convince them. And so Jesus said, It's going to be worse for you than Tyre and Sidon. There were no miracles done by the prophets in Tyre and Sidon. Isaiah didn't. Jonah didn't do a miracle when he went over to Nineveh. And yet, people in Nineveh repented. That's, by the way, in the next section here. And in chapter 12. But no miracles there in Tyre. But Jesus said something very theologically profound. He said, you've got these miracles and you won't believe. They would have believed if they had seen what you guys, even just a handful of miracles, they would have repented. And says in sackcloth and ashes, that's like ripping their clothes and groveling on the ground with sorry, with sorry. He says they would have repented long ago. But no miracles was done. They didn't repent. They died lost. Here's the bottom line, verse 22 But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. That's comparable to any of the judgments that Isaiah pronounced upon the neighboring countries. But this was unexpected. I imagine those self righteous Pharisees would have said, Us? Who do you think you are? We're God's chosen people. And Jesus would have said, But you're no better than the pagans. We're proud. And Jesus said, your self-righteousness stinks to God. And they said, we, we believe. And Jesus said, you don't believe, you don't repent. So this is a toe-to-toe confrontation. But notice again, verse 22, judgment day is coming. According to the Bible, all our sinners will be judged and sent to hell. But there are gradations of judgment... There's like difference between a felony and a misdemeanor, and there's double felonies and life without parole and all that. The Bible says some sinners die more lost than others. They all go to hell, but some have a hotter hell than others. And if you didn't know about this, you, you might say, well, see, who gets the hottest part of hell? I guess it would be the pagans. And Jesus in the next chapter says, well, what about people in Sodom and Gomorrah? The worst culture the world has ever known. That's where we get the word sodomy from, from Sodom. That's where they practice homosexuality, lesbianism, rape, pagan worship of demons, human sacrifices. You can hardly think of anything worse except maybe 21st century America. And God rained down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. None of them got saved. You'd say, yes, and the Jews for centuries said, yes, but we're not like them. Remember we saw earlier in Isaiah said if it wasn't for God's mercy you'd get the same judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah. But hear what Jesus says in chapter 12 similar to the woes concerning Tyre and Sidon and the Pharisees he said on judgment day yes Tyre and Sidon they're going to get it down in hell but you wicked Pharisees you hypocrites you're going to get it worse than them it's going to look tolerable on them compared to you even though all of you are going to hell. I read sermon by Jonathan Edwards on this recently, and he said the lowest parts of hell that are the hottest of all, number one is for Satan, and next would be self-righteous religious hypocrites that go to a gospel preaching church. They see the miracle in people's lives of being converted. They hear gospel preaching and they still not believe. More light rejected means more darkness and hell for them. Wow, and that's true. And that's a lesson we learn about Tyre and Sidon from Jesus as well as Isaiah. Let's draw some conclusions and lessons from what we've looked at tonight. God had said to Abraham at the beginning of the nation of Israel, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And so God is cursing those that opposed Israel because they were still God's special people. Are they God's special people today? Yes and no. They're not keeping the covenant. They're not keeping the law. Very few of them are Christian Jews. A few are the believing remnant. They're not honoring the covenant. They're certainly not honoring God's law. Even the most, the most observant Jews, you know, the Hasidic Jews with wearing black and the curls, curly sideburns. They are the descendants of the Pharisees. They are the strongest opponents of Christians, just like in the day of Christ they're not better than those that Jesus leveled the severe judgment on. And yet, how odd of God to choose the Jews. They're still a nation. And there are some believing Christian Jews in Israel as well as Brooklyn. And lo and behold, even in Springfield, Illinois, they have a, a Jewish Christian church here. Pray for them. God's not finished. Just like the remnant that has been mentioned earlier in Israel, there's still a remnant of believing Jews around the world. God's not finished with them. Now, here's another question. Looking at how God chose the Jews and have dealt with other nations over the centuries, the rise and fall of empires and small nations, the question is, why does God deal more with some nations than others? Why did he choose Israel and others? He didn't choose Israel because they were big and mighty and smart and all that, no. He chose them because they were small and they were pagans Abraham was a pagan when God chose him. He was worshiping Babylonian gods. God changed him, But God said, I'm gonna choose Israel. You can expand upon this question. Why does God deal more with some nations than others? Why has Christianity thrived in some nations and not others? In the earliest centuries, it thrived in Israel, some up in Syria. And then gradually over to North Africa, where Augustine was. There was a thriving Jewish community in Libya and Egypt. Egypt, that's where the great Athanasius was from. Why has Christianity thrived? (coughs) Excuse me. Hmm. Sorry. Why has Christianity thrived over the centuries in some nations for others? And why has it thrived in some nations temporarily? And then not later. For example, the Reformation started in Germany, it thrived for centuries. Not today. Less than five percent of Germans go to church. Less than two percent of them would be what we would call evangelicals in Germany, the Evangelische. So it thrived, and now it's in decline. And it's like that in many other nations. Why did Europe thrive with Christianity for centuries, but now it's shrinking? Why is it growing in China under the persecution of the communists? Why did it grow under the Soviet Union persecution? Why did it survive persecution under Nazism? Why, why, why all these questions? And the answer is because God is sovereign. He chose Israel, he didn't choose the other ones. And he sends Christians here and there, and he sends revival to some, he sends reformation here and there, and he blows upon one people, and many of them get saved, and other ones he doesn't. It's because of God is sovereign over the nations. And yet he is still at work. Look at the 20th century. It began with the Korean Pentecost revival. Before that, the Koreans were steeped in all sorts of Buddhism. But then within one generation, Christianity became the majority religion of South Korea. China, not much Christianity until the communists took over and then it grew under the boot heel of the Chinese communists and the underground churches. And there are probably more true believers in China than in America. And God might take his hand off America and we'd be, go back to being like pagan nations. Why did God condemn these nations? Three reasons. Number one, they rejected the one true God. All these nations we looked at tonight worshiped other gods, not the one true God. Secondly, they not only rejected the true God, they believed in false gods. And thirdly, they attacked Israel with the book of, uh, book of Zechariah says, was the apple of God's eye. What's the apple of the eye? Your pupil. There's God saying, you attack them, it's like you're poking your finger in my eye and I don't like it. Nobody wants to have their eye poked at. And so that's why God came to the rescue of Israel. That principle applies today. The vast majority of the world is against God. And since they oppose God, like in the days of Isaiah, they oppose God's people. They oppose. That principle applies today. The vast majority of the world opposes the one true God and God's true people the church, Christians, Baptists, Presbyterians, and others, and we are still the remnant like the Jews in the Old Testament. Jesus said, they hated me, therefore they will hate you. But God's not through. We find various prophets prophets such as Isaiah predicting things in the future like a golden age of Jews becoming Christians, Romans 11. What about these other nations? They're not reprobate. There will still be some believers from the remnant of these nations condemned to make up that great multitude of heaven from every land, tongue, and nation. God's not through. What is he gonna do next year? Let's let's pray. Father, we've done a brief survey of your condemnation of those nations some 2,800 years ago. And we know that you're not through. Send us out. Bless the missionaries. Bless Christians around the world so that the gospel would continue to go forth and you would use it to call in those that you have chosen and those that you will save. In Jesus' name. Amen.